This escape pod is rated PG for extreme bravery in a vacuum. Escape pod 252 August 5th, 2010 Billion Dollar View by Ray Tabler Welcome to Escape Pod. I'm your host and editor, Mer Lafferty. It's late summer in the Northern Hemisphere, and my part of the world is suffering from a major heat wave, where all you want to do is lie in a hammock all day and periodically put ice cubes on your forehead. It's on a day like today, where our high is expected to be 103 degrees Fahrenheit, where I think what we need is a story that takes place in deep, dark, cold space. I present to you Billion Dollar View by Ray Tabler. Ray is a chemical engineer who was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. He moved to the frozen wilds of Michigan due to a tragic addiction to a steady paycheck, married a Yankee girl, and is now stuck there and happy. Links to his work can be found at writertopia.com slash profile slash raytabler, one word. We'll have a link in the show notes. It's read to us by Dr. John Smarr, who seeks to break free from being typecast as a snack cake. So I'm buying the next round as the musician starts up the ballad, as it's story time. Billion Dollar View by Ray Tabler Let's have another song. One of the three miners at the table nearest the stage sent a credit chip spinning lazily towards the singer. The guitarist scooped the money out of the air and tucked it away. Any song in particular? He smiled and plucked at the strings idly, in the way musicians do. He floated in the microgravity, anchored to the stage at the center of the tavern with one nonchalant foot. The miners argued good-naturedly about their next request. What are they celebrating? A weathered belt rat near the door asked the bartender. The bartender shook his head. They came in a few hours ago. Seems they found a 40-meter rock, 10 degrees spinward from Ceres, that's mostly high-grade osmeridium ore. Consolidated Metals bought it at auction this morning. The belt rat whistled. 40 meters of Aussie! No wonder they're getting drunk. Yeah, the bartender nodded. First time out, too. First time out? The old miner's face soured. Friggin' newbies get all the breaks. It's not like the old days. The bartender shook his head. Yeah, it sure ain't like the old days, thank God. The three newly rich miners had come to an agreement. Play Molly's song! We love that one! One of them bellowed and sailed another credit chip at the stage. The musician stopped playing and stared at the three miners. The chip floated past the guitarist and ricocheted off the far wall. The crowded tavern was suddenly silent and chilly. The musician cleared his throat. <clears throat> Maybe you boys should pick a different song. We want Molly's song. What's the matter? Don't you know it? Oh, I know the song. We all know the song. I just don't think it's a good idea to sing it right now. Someone at a table near the miners leaned over. You damn fools. Don't you know who that is over there in the corner? The bartender apologized to a gray old man hunched over his drink in the corner. Sorry, Red. Damn newbies don't know crap. I'll throw them out. No, Red rumbled, staring at the stained tabletop. Let them be. 
Red turned and looked at the guitarist. Play the song. The guitarist didn't move. You sure, Red? Red nodded slowly. Yeah, I want to hear it again. In that case, Red, I'd be honored. This one's on me. The guitarist bent to his work, fingers flying across the frets and strumming a fast, intricate rhythm. Then his raspy voice began to sing about Molly. But my name is Simon. Molly shook her head and chuckled. With a head of hair like that? Nope. From now on, your name is Red. Simon felt his young face flushing with embarrassment, which would further cement his new nickname. What if I don't want to be called Red? Too late. You should have shaved your head before I bought your contract. Molly winked at him, executed a backflip in midair, and launched herself out of the labor mart. Come on, Red, we ain't got all day. Red struggled to catch up. His inner ear had been complaining about the microgravity environment since the flight up to the L5 colonies from Kazakhstan. The months-long trip out to Ceres had been spent sedated and fed intravenously, tethered in a pod with 49 other contract laborers. The end result was a general lack of coordination that the doctors assured him was temporary. Wait up! Molly slowed her progress down the rocky corridor enough to allow Red to keep pace. I remember how it was when I first hit Ceres, but we have to move. They charge docking fees by the minute, so you're already costing me money. Look, I realize I didn't have much choice about who bought my contract, but I'd at least like to know what exactly I'll be doing. A toothy white grin spread across Molly's chocolate face. You didn't have any choice, Red. Just be glad it was me and not the boys down in Waste Streams Processing. Now, as I said, we're in a hurry. Just keep your arms close to your sides and your legs straight. If you get too scared, close your eyes. Molly grabbed Red's coveralls by the scruff of the neck and abruptly towed him down the corridor, gaining speed with every handhold she passed. Red had his eyes tightly shut within ten meters. Red didn't realize they were on Molly's ship until she clanged the hatch shut behind her. Welcome to your new home, the Rock Jockey. He opened his eyes to behold a cylindrical volume wide enough to stretch his arms out, and about three man-lengths long, lined with white locker doors and instrument panels. A strong odor of dirty socks filled the air. Stow your stuff in here. Molly tapped the door of a small locker the size of a toaster. Fortunately, the one-kilogram limit on personal items had pared Red's personal items down to a volume that fit it, with room to spare. Molly leaned close to a voice pickup. Rock jockey to series traffic control. We are undocking. What are the damages? A male voice crackled from the speaker. What's the deal, Molly? You've been docked for less than two hours. Don't you like my company? Molly slapped the transmit button. Dan, you're too ugly to charge as much as you do for your company. Marry me, Molly. Get in line, Danny boy. Get in line. I'm heartbroken. Your consumable levels are all topped off. The fees have already been deducted from your account. Rock Jockey, you are cleared to depart. As Molly nudged Rock Jockey away from Ceres, she glanced over at Red. Any questions? Yeah. Where's the rest of the ship? Molly was chuckling about that one for days.
Over the next few weeks, Red learned more about running the rock jockey and staying alive in the belt than he ever imagined existed. Molly, who is Bob? Red eyed the name tag on the pressure suit Molly had handed him. There was an unsettling stain inside. Molly sighed. Who was Bob, you should say? Well, Bob got careless, and Professor Vacuum doesn't grade on a curve. But don't worry, I'll get your name on the suit before you go EVA. Once Red got used to the interesting stains and odd odor in the second-hand pressure suit, he actually began to enjoy the opportunity to get outside of Rock Jockey's confining hull. Now pay attention to this part, Red. Molly's thick gloves danced over the keypad of the electronics package they had attached to the house-sized asteroid Rock Jockey had matched orbits with. There. Soon as we nudge this hunk of rock the way we want it to go, this unit will become active and continuously update the traffic center on Ceres with its position and velocity. Once she gets close enough to the construction site, the big tugs can come out and tow her back to the smelters. If we're lucky, these knuckleheads running the smelters might even remember to take the unit off and set it aside before they start carving the rock up to fit in the feed chute. Even if they don't, we should still get paid for another hunk of iron by the grand and glorious Extra Solar Development Corporation. To build their grand and glorious colony ship. Red was silent for a long moment. Do you ever think about trying for a berth on that ship, Molly? Molly chuckled. Who out here hasn't, Red? Maybe I will someday. There'll be a long time building it. In the meantime, I get to be here, and I get to see this. She gestured at the sky. There's Jupiter, shining like a beacon. Saturn's over that way, and that tiny blue speck is Earth. The richest people on Earth don't have this view. It's my billion-dollar view. Boom times came to the belt. Rock Jockey was one of a small fleet of independent contractors gathering up materials for ESD's colony ship. The lucky ones prospered. Others ended up broke or dead, or both. There was fierce competition between them, but also an abiding camaraderie that sprang up from shared hardships and dangers. Red held the rocket motor while Kenji Hijiyama anchored it to the asteroid. Kenji kicked back a few meters, floating at the end of his tether to check the alignment before he pulled himself back to the surface. That looks good, Red. Two done and four to go. Red powered up the motor's control link. Phew! Never shoved a rock this big before, Kenji. Kenji grinned at him, teeth white in his pressure suit faceplate. Me neither, and we wouldn't this time without help from you and Molly. Ceres control required backup steering rockets if a rock was big enough. Molly and the Hijiyamas had to pool most of their cash to lease the units, but the payoff would be worth it. Red and Kenji clipped onto Rock Jockey's auxiliary vehicle, the Broomstick, a four-meter length of structural aluminum with an engine at one end and a control box at the other. Red lined up the broomstick with the staccato bursts from the attitude jets. He was learning how to survive in the belt the only way a newbie could, fast and well. A healthy burn from the aft nozzle sent them back towards where Rock Jockey and Kenji's ship, the Hijiyama Maru, floated side by side. Molly and Kenji's wife, Masako, were visibly preparing another rocket motor for mounting. 
Three tiny pressure suits capered about the exteriors of both ships in a free-form game of zero-g tag. Christ on a crutch, Kenji, Red chuckled. Don't you worry about your kids floating off and getting lost? Sure I do, Kenji wrapped Red's helmet playfully. But what are we supposed to do, keep them cooped up inside? They get stir-crazy enough as it is. Besides, the belt is their home now. They've got to learn how to live out here. Masako and I won't be around to hold their hands forever. Red pondered that for a moment. Hey, Red, speaking of kids, when are you and Molly going to start having some? Oh, lay off me, Kenji. Molly's just my boss, that's all. You sure about that, Red? Yeah, of course I am. Kenji just grinned at him. Red didn't say a word for the rest of the trip back. Molly and Red worked hard and grew rich. They didn't think of themselves as rich. In fact, they barely noticed it all. They were too busy shepherding rocks across the sky. They grew close, alone with only each other and Molly's billion-dollar view for company. How close? Well, that was their business and nobody else's. Red held Molly close in the darkness. The instrument panels glowed about them like stars. What do you mean I don't look like a Molly? She tussled his red hair. Well, you don't. Red stroked her cheek and then struck a thoughtful pose. You look more like, well, Yolanda. Yolanda? Molly attacked mercilessly. Within seconds, Red was helpless. She knew just where he was most ticklish. Molly wrapped herself around Red as he slowly caught his breath. You're right about one thing. I wasn't Molly before I came out to the belt. The first rock I pushed turned out to be rich in molybdenum. The jokers at the smelter started calling me Molly because of that. The name stuck? She shrugged. Does it matter what my real name is? After a long, slow kiss, Red whispered, Not to me, Molly. Not to me. Then, one day, while Red was preparing another rock for a long, looping trip to the smelters, the emergency code appeared on Rock Jockey's display screen. What's up, Maul? Red asked as soon as he had his helmet off. It's bad. Real bad. Her dark skin actually looked pale. Half of the Hijiyama Maru's propellant lit off all at once. Kenji and Masako are dead. Christ almighty, what about the kids? Hannah's injured. Hiroshi and Maiko seem to be okay, from what I can tell over the radio, but almost all of their O2 is gone. Who can reach them in time? Just us. Sort of. Red felt his guts not up. What do you mean, sort of? I've got it all worked out, and the burns are already programmed into the jockey's computer. Red studied the diagram of what Molly proposed on the screen. The physics wouldn't work out for the rock jockey to match orbits with the Hijiyama Maru before the kids ran out of things to breathe. However, they could get close, relatively speaking. Then, one of them could strap on to the broomstick. The broomstick could match with the Hijiyama, pick up the kids, and make it back. Barely. We don't have much time, Red reached for his helmet. It's a good thing I'm already suited up. Red, you're not riding the broomstick. I am. Red noticed, belatedly, that Molly had her pressure suit on as well. Like hell you are. This is way too chancy. I'll do it. 
damn it, Red, it has to be me. I'm a better pilot, and I've got this calculated to the last gram. You're just too heavy. If you go, these kids are going to die. You must have figured wrong. Red reached for the computer keyboard. God damn it, all to hell, Red, don't touch that computer. Don't even look at it. I told you I programmed it to do the burns automatically. You know how thorough I am. I didn't make any damn mistakes. This is the only way we're going to save those kids. Red closed his eyes, trying to deny what he knew to be the truth. Rock Jockey executed her first burn. All right, damn it, Red forced out. Molly reached for her helmet. Red watched the radar display as the broomstick slowly moved away from the rock jockey and toward what was left of the Hijiyama Maru. Molly called in every hour on the hour. The wait in between calls seemed to stretch for years. Red radioed the Hijiyama Maru to make sure the kids knew what was going on and to check that they were already in pressure suits. Timing would be critical. He silently cursed Kenji and Masako for bringing their kids out to the belt. Then, he had to admit that he had often wondered how it would feel to raise a family out here, with Molly. Finally, the speaker crackled to life ten minutes before the hour. Red, we're on our way back. The kids are strapped in, but they're sedated to conserve O2. You're going to have to maneuver and go EVA to snag the broomstick when it gets close. It'll be out of fuel by then. Don't you worry. I'll bring you in. God, it's good to hear your voice, Molly. Kind of like the sound of yours, too, Red. Molly, did you lose something? There's another blip on the scope floating away from you. Oh, that's nothing. Just some extra mass I had to jettison to make sure the fuel left will do the job. Red went out on the rock jockey's hull and snagged the drifting broomstick on his third try. He had it secure before he realized that there were only three pressure suits strapped to the thing. With a sinking feeling, Red remembered the blip floating away from the broomstick on the radar screen. Molly! Molly! Where are you? Don't be angry, Red. Molly's voice sounded faint on Red's radio suit. Why? Why'd you do it? I told you. I had this figured down to the last gram. It was the only way to save the kids. Red wept. Take care of the kids, Red. You're all they got now. There was a long pause. I think I'll just take some time to enjoy the view. The guitarist finished with a last slow strum of the strings. Silence echoed in the tavern. Red stared at his drink. Three people had entered the tavern near the end of the song, a young Asian man and two young Asian women. They shared an obvious family resemblance. The newcomers floated over to Red. The young man put his hand on Red's shoulder. Pops, you shouldn't be listening to that song. You know it just makes you sad. Red turned, a tear in his eye, but a smile on his face. Nothing could make me sad tonight, son. My kids are leaving on the colony ship in the morning to found a new world. And that was our story. I tend to think that instead of running into a firefight, bravery is looking into the abyss and stepping over. There's no adrenaline rush to get you through, no stat bonus from an epinephrine boost. The monster that swallows you is so big, you'll never feel its teeth, but it kills you all the same. 
That's why deep space stories get to me. It's just a matter of something so vast and so deadly. Something that can swallow all the armies or the dragons or even the germs. Space almost always wins. I think we forget that when NASA launches another rocket to space. That it's still such a big deal that we have humans among us willing to go into that abyss. We have a couple of things to get to this week. I wanted to announce the launch of Wizards Tower Press, a new small press publisher specializing in science fiction, fantasy, and related literature. Founded by Hugo Award-winning critic Cheryl Morgan, the company aims to take out-of-print works and make them available again as e-books and to give authors and small presses an access to the e-book market. You can find out more about them at wizardstowerpress.com. We're about a month away from Worldcon, and I really hope to see several people there, so if you see me there, say hi! And our ARM Assistant Regional Manager, Bill Peters, has returned this week with more feedback. Take it away, Bill. Thanks, Mer. This is the feedback for episode 244, Non-Zero Probabilities by N.K. Jemison, and read by Kate Baker, originally for Clark's World. The story was about in New York, where the one-in-a-million possibilities actually were lurking around every corner. There was some discussion of if it really belonged on Podcastle rather than here, but it's a Hugo nominee, and so we stuck it in our escape pod with some welcome help from the Podcastle team. The story won marks for its humor and conceit, but several expressed some surprise that it made it to the Hugo shortlist. Unblinking said, It was good, a neat idea and neat setup, but ran a little long, and in the end, it wasn't really spectacular. If it hadn't been a Hugo nominee, I'd say it was pretty good, but the expectations are raised by its nomination, and I just didn't think it reached that high. Portrait and Flesh said, I'm not entirely certain how I feel about this story. Parts of it appeared to me to describe a world that was a bit better, and that people were actually taking the time to talk to each other now, and are, maybe, being a bit enriched by the experience. And yet there's this whole movement to kind of change world karma because things aren't as they used to be. Void Manishi said, The story was both dark and funny at the same time. I can't think of a real resolution to the situation that would have been any more satisfying. And that's it for this week. I'll be back next week with the feedback for episode 245, The Moment. And now back to Murr. Thanks to Bill for fielding all the reader feedback and the forums. Lastly, I'd like to give some long-overdue promo love to N.K. Jemison, the Hugo-nominated author of Non-Zero Probabilities, as she has a novel out. author N.K. Jemison comes a stunning epic fantasy novel of intrigue, betrayal, and dark beauty. The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms is provocative and exciting, says author Kate Elliott. An extraordinary world, says author Carol Berg. The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, out February 25th from Orbit Books.
Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. All other rights are reserved by our authors. Blog about us, talk about us, tweet about us, or donate to us. We love all these things, but considering that donations help us pay our authors, we love that one the most. Our PayPal button is at escapepod.org. Be sure to check out our sister podcasts, Pseudopod for Horror and Podcastle for Fantasy. Both can be found at their .org domains. Escape Pod is edited by Mer Lafferty, with Alistair Stewart as reviews editor and Bill Peters as assistant to the regional manager, or the ARM. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju, and you can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. We close with a quote from Dante in Paradiso. When, from the midmost of this blue abyss, by turn some star is to our vision lost. We'll see you next week, and be mighty. Be mighty.